Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. By the grace of God, I would like to begin an exposition of this epistle of Paul's to the saints that were at Corinth and see if we can't learn some things from it. When I look into the Word of God, I see that the method of Bible teaching was to read in the Word of God distinctly and to give the sense. I want to follow that method in going through this epistle. The Holy Spirit is going to introduce us to many subjects in 1 Corinthians. There are more subjects dealt with in 1 Corinthians than all the other epistles combined. Because they had so many errors. So many heresies. And they had written a letter asking so many questions. And so we have 16 chapters that deal with many subjects that the Lord, the Lord's going to lead us to. Acts chapter 18, which some of you hopefully read last evening, introduced you to the city of Corinth. And the much people that the Lord had there. Remember the Lord appeared to Paul in a dream and said, Don't worry, nothing's going to happen to you because I have much people here. Corinth is situated in what we now call Greece. A little isthmus of land between the northern part of Greece and the southern part. After the Romans conquered the Greeks just prior to our Lord being born, they named the southern part Achaia and the northern part Macedonia, both terms of which are used throughout the New Testament And I want you to recognize them as Macedonia. Remember, Alexander the Great was a Macedonian. And so when you read the word Macedonia, it's that upper northern section of Greece. Achaia is the southern section. Corinth was the capital of Achaia. And that's where the deputy, deputy Gallio, was located when you read over there in Acts chapter 18 last evening, if you did that. Corinth was much like America. And there's value in that. Just very, very briefly, Corinth, being situated with the Ionian Sea on one side and the Adriatic Sea on the other, was a very advantageous place for merchantmen to drop off their goods. And so it was a very rich city. And America is a very rich country. Because of its riches, it was very effeminate and luxurious, as is America. Because of its riches and its effeminacy and luxury, it was very lascivious the most wicked of all the cities of the Roman Empire as far as sexual immorality. Very important as we go through the epistle. Because there's problems there that the other churches did not have. And they had a cold, lackadaisical attitude toward it. The city of Corinth worshipped the goddess Venus. And all the religious sexual immorality that went along with her worship. Horrible place as far as The kind of people. They were proud because they were so successful. They were idolaters of a high high degree. And so we have several chapters in 1 Corinthians dedicated to their idolatry. Proud, puffed up. We're going to run into that because they questioned the Apostle Paul's authority. Very lascivious. And we're going to run into 1 Corinthians 5 where they have fornication that is not spoken among most Gentiles. And chapter 6, where it talks about the Lord owning our bodies. We are bought with a price, remember? We're not to use our bodies in fornication. So there's much 
and just knowing a little tiny bit, which I've just now exhausted, all you need to know about the city of Corinth. It was very much like America in 2004. The Apostle Paul was there, and Apollos was also there at that church, as you can read about in Acts chapter 18 and the first verse of Acts 19. To pursue the route of an exposition, which is to read the Word of God and to explain it to you, the Holy Spirit is going to introduce us to many things, and it is going to help you in your reading of the Word of God because you're going to see how we read and explain Scripture. Now, there are a number of verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that I could preach an entire message from right now, easily, because there are some verses that are very weighty about the relationship of the gospel to salvation in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But I am not going to follow a course like that. I do not want you to get so lost that you lose sight of the epistle. I have very ambitious goals for this morning. So here we go, by the grace of God, to see what we can do. You can probably suppose what I have set for my goal for this morning. But we want to cover the surface and get what the Lord, the Holy Spirit, wants us to from this chapter. And for those of you that are more studious, you may ask me out of this pulpit any question that you want about this chapter or the ones that we're going to deal with in the future. Let us go to the first section of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. A couple of years after having been at the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul writes this epistle. He writes it because the wickedness in that church is becoming known abroad. It's of common report. He writes it because they have written him asking him questions that he needs to deal with, such as marriage in chapter 7. He writes this epistle because one family had written him, the family of Chloe, and told him, we got problems. The church has got contentions in it. So for those reasons, here comes the epistle. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. The first three verses. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you, and peace, from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, as he often begins his epistles, opens with his name. You know, we often put our names at the end of a, a letter, but a salutation in this time, you started off with identifying who you were, in writing. So he starts off with Paul, and he mentions that he is an apostle by the will of God. An apostle was the highest office in the New Testament church, the highest office the church has ever had, and there have been no other apostles since the first batch of apostles died. We don't have an apostle in Greenville, even though the fastest growing church in Greenville claims to be operated by an apostle and apostles. That's the World Redemption Outreach Center. There had been no more apostles. A condition and a qualification for an apostle was they had to have seen the Lord Jesus Christ so that they could be a witness of his resurrection. There's no one in Greenville able to do that. This man was an apostle not because he thought he ought to call himself an apostle to help his church grow. Paul was an apostle by the will of God, and we know about his conversion. God reached down and grabbed the 
Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and changed his life and said, I've appeared to thee for a purpose. It's for you to be a minister of mine, and you're going to suffer for my name like you have caused many others to suffer. But Paul begins by identifying his weighty office in the New Testament church. He was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God. He did not take this office to himself. In fact, he never had a thought toward this office. He had a thought to doing damage toward this office by persecuting the church. And he mentions Sosthenes, our brother. Sosthenes, if you go back to Acts chapter 18, was the chief ruler of the synagogue after Paul converted the chief ruler of the synagogue. If you go read Acts 18, Crispus was the chief ruler of the synagogue. Paul converted him by his preaching. He was replaced by Sosthenes, and Sosthenes was converted. Now, that's a heavy blow to the Jews in that city. And so they raised trouble against the Apostle Paul because he'd converted two of their chief leaders. But Paul has Sosthenes with him wherever he's writing from, and I could, it'd take a sermon. It'd take a sermon to show you that he was writing from Ephesus, but it doesn't matter where he was writing from. But he's got Sosthenes with him, which is this converted chief ruler of the synagogue, and so the two of them are attaching their name to this epistle. Now, Paul's a wise man by the inspiration of God, and so he attaches this well-respected man along with his name in order to give as much credibility to this epistle as possible right out of the chute. Because these people were proud, and they had preacher factions at this church, and so Paul's establishing himself. It's not just me writing. It's Sosthenes, our brother, your brother, and my brother. And he agrees with me in the assessment of what I'm about to say to you. And so, our first verse. Verse 2 tells us that this letter is addressed to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Church of God. Now, there's a lot of churches of God today. You can look in the yellow pages and find the church of God, but it's not this church of God. They call themselves the church of God, just like churches call themselves the churches of Christ. But this is the church of God by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These people were saved by God, called out of the city of Corinth by God, and were worshiping God. The church of God is a congregation of people that have set the Lord God as the object of their worship and His Son, Jesus Christ. So it was the church of God. And it says something more about them. It says they were at Corinth. So here we have the word church used in a very limited way. A local congregation of saints at Corinth. There are many that want to use the word church describing a universal body of all believers in Jesus Christ. And it may be used that way in a couple of places. But let me tell you that the vast majority of its uses are like right here. A local congregation of a specific number of believers in Jesus Christ in a specific location, this one being Corinth. You know, it's the Roman Catholics that create the idea of a super church. So that you're baptized into the church. You're a Roman Catholic wherever you are in the earth, and they look at the super church. But the church in the Bible is a local assembly of saints. Under the church of God, see saints together in Corinth, the most wicked city on earth, not Jerusalem, but in Corinth, could be called the church of God. So when we refer to ourselves, it is scriptural to refer to ourselves as the church of God, 
which is at Greenville, or which is in Greenville, or the Church of Christ, which is in Greenville, because we are Christ's church. He is our head, he is our bishop, he is our high priest, and he is our cornerstone. It's his church. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, and here's the identity of true members of true churches, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctification, remember what it means? To make holy. These people had been made holy by the Lord Jesus Christ. They were saints. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And that's quite a little statement. Because what city are we talking about but the city of Corinth? Wicked men. Do you know that it's going to tell us in chapter 6 that there were converted faggots in this church? It's going to tell us that. There were converted effeminate men in this church. Maybe some cross-dressers in this church of Corinth. But they were sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. That means they had been made holy by the blood of Christ at the cross of Calvary, which it tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, He has sanctified them forever by His will in dying on the cross for us. And they were sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit in giving them a new heart, a new man, in the work of regeneration that was washed from all their past sins. And that's true church members. Whenever someone is not living a sanctified life, they are not living like a true church member because they ought to be sanctified in Christ. All true church members are sanctified legally and vitally. And that's what it means when it says, them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Because that's where we were chosen before the world began and were legally and vitally holy in Christ. But then the apostle moves immediately to the fourth phase of being holy, called to be saints. Not only are true church members saints legally, death of Christ, vitally, by regeneration, they are then called to be saints. They are charged and told by the gospel that they ought to be living holy lives. So they're called to be saints. With all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says this epistle is not just for you saints at Corinth, but after you're through reading it, send it out to other people that they can read it as well. And that was his practice. Do you remember when I preached to you from Colossians, when we got to chapter 4 and verse 16? He tells the Colossians, give this epistle to the church at Laodicea and get the epistle that I wrote them and bring it back and read it in Colossae. That was his method. And so this epistle has come all the way to Greenville, South Carolina, the United States of America in 2004 in obedience to the Holy Spirit's direction that this was to all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Jesus Christ is our Lord and he's their Lord. Ours and theirs. Corinthians, you and I have a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and so do all these other believers in other places. This is the unity that we have in Christ Jesus with all other believers, true believers. This is why I said to my brother yesterday on a telephone call, my brother in the Lord, we come from the same bloodline because our bloodline is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I've taught you blood is thicker than blood. The blood of Christ is thicker than the blood that makes up our families because our first loyalty is to the Lord Jesus. This is the unity that is in Christ Jesus throughout the earth, both theirs and ours. Now think for a minute. 
Oh, think for a minute with me. The goddess Diana, she was the goddess of what people? The Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Every city had their principal deity that they worshipped. But there's something different about our God, isn't there? He's the God of the whole earth. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the prince of the kings of the nations of the earth. And so it doesn't matter where you are, we are all united in Christ Jesus. I am praying and I'm trusting that when you read the correspondence that I referred to a few minutes ago, you will find in your heart affection flowing out of it, wanting to do something for that brother. Those of you that have read it, do you all agree with me that it ought to be there? And I believe it will be there. If it's not there, if you can read that like a newspaper article, you have a problem. Because there ought to be a heart unity with other brothers in the faith. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you. Paul doesn't say grace has been to you. He says grace be unto you. And do you know why? Because we depend on the grace of God to live today. We need the grace of God to live tomorrow. Do you know that? My life has been enriched this week. By a personal commitment to spend more personal time with the Lord, even if my ministry suffers and it didn't suffer. (laughs) You didn't think that it would, did you? I have felt all week long, and I don't mean feelings in the sense that you might think from that word. I mean power and enrichment all week long because of more time in the Word of God. And I took it, even when in the past I might have said, Let me go work on such and such an outline. Do you know what happens when you do that, even for a minister? Do you know the outline will fill your day up and it's time to go to bed? I have the same temptations you do. We need grace today. Grace chose us in Christ before the world began. There was grace abundant at the cross of Calvary. Grace found us in life and regenerated our hearts and gave us a new one. But we need grace to live. And so the apostle always opens up by saying, grace be to you. Because we need grace to live. And then he says, peace from God our Father. Because while we're fighting, do you have two men inside of you that fight? Do you need peace sometimes from God the Father? I find in myself a warfare going on all the time. And whenever I take a glimpse at the world, I find them wanting to fight with me too. And so I've got this turmoil. But there's peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he can bury you in peace. We need grace and peace on a present tense basis. And do you know where it comes from? It comes from God our Father. And do you know who it comes from? It comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the means and the way by which God is able to show grace and peace to us because he has purchased it for us at the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ endured that great conflict of sinners against himself and won. He's made peace for us with God. He's destroyed the devil. And our enemies, we have peace. And so this is the salutation of 1 Corinthians. This is how godly men write letters. This is what a Christian writes letters like. It sounds something like that. Because you're bringing blessings of grace and peace upon someone else, and you're mentioning the fact that our unity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's quite a name dropper. 
When you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, did you find the Lord Jesus Christ mentioned in almost every verse? Amen. When you're writing a letter, don't worry about dropping that name, because there is no name like the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our high priest. He is our judge. He is our brother. He is our friend. He is our counselor. He is the shepherd of our souls. He is the bishop of our souls. He's everything. Drop his name as often as you wish. I hope that we all live worthy of that wonderful name. Verses 4 through 9. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is his commendation. And the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of God, is wise. Before he unloads on them for about 14 chapters... He commends them for some things that he could find that were commendable at this church. So he says, I thank my God always on your behalf. And what he was first of all thankful for was the grace of God which had been given to them. Because in the city of Corinth, the most depraved, lascivious, immoral city of the time, God had raised up a people. I thank my God always. See, Paul had come from Athens when he came to Corinth. He had been in Athens. He preached on Mars Hill to all the Greek philosophers. He was very worked up about Greek philosophers because hardly any believed in the city of Athens. And when he comes to Corinth and when he writes, notice how he writes, chapter 1, chapter 3, he ridicules Greek philosophy. He ridicules Greek philosophers. He ridicules scribes and the disputers of this world. Those men that sat at Areopagus, he ridicules them. Corinth being just a few miles away, had that kind of Greek learning. He was thankful for the grace of God that called a group of people out of a city as wicked as Corinth. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you, and there it is again, by Jesus Christ. Because the salvation to change a man's life and to call him out of sin and give him a new heart is by the Lord Jesus Christ who secured all that for us by the laying down of his life at the cross of Calvary. He says in his thanksgiving and commendation that in everything ye are enriched by him. You Corinthians, I know that God's grace is in you and that that it is enriching your lives. And that is what I want to say to you, that if you will seek the Lord every day and walk with him and read his word daily and pray daily, which we have covenanted together to do in the year 2004, your life will be enriched. This was not every member of the church at Corinth. The fornicator in chapter 5, the false teachers in chapter 15, were not enriched in all areas of their lives. These were the true members, the faithful members, that Paul was, was singling out for this type of praise. 
ye are enriched. And then it says, in all utterance and in all knowledge. The Corinthian church, and what he's about to explain here is, the Corinthians had more spiritual gifts than any other church in the New Testament. See, he's going to tell us that in verse 7. So that ye come behind in no gift. They were, they were second place to no church in their number of spiritual gifts. There was no New Testament at the church at Corinth. When they got together, when they got together for church in Corinth, there was no New Testament. They didn't even have 1 Corinthians yet. So when they got together, there were spiritual gifts throughout the church in apostles, prophets, and teachers. And 1 Corinthians 14 tells us how it was to work. A prophet would stand up and begin speaking by the direct inspiration of God. He would simply stand up and start preaching about baptism. He might go for three minutes. That's all I have to say. And he would sit down. But do you know what? Someone else in the church would immediately stand up and speak for several more minutes on baptism. Or whatever other subject they needed. Because God gave the gift of prophecy. He gave the gift of wisdom. He gave the gift of knowledge. If you go to 1 Corinthians 14, you can read about how it works because Paul tells them one at a time. One at a time and only a few in total because the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. The prophet does not have to get up and interrupt. I want all things done decently and in order. They did not have the Bible, but they had an abundance of these spiritual gifts at this church. Remember, what church is it that has the most chapters written to it about spiritual gifts? It's Corinth, because they were full of those spiritual gifts. You know, and this fact that we're covering right now is a condemnation of the charismatics. Right. What was the most carnal church in the New Testament? Corinth. Corinth. What was the church with the most errors in the New Testament? Corinth. Corinth. Most heresies? Corinth. Corinth. But they had the most spiritual gifts. Charismatics just worship spiritual gifts and they're proof of nothing. King Saul prophesied with the prophets, but he was the most profane king. Not of all the kings, but he was a profane man. But he prophesied with the prophets. Judas Iscariot preached so well that none of the apostles knew that he was the one that was going to betray our Lord. John and Peter thought it was them. Gifts do not prove anything. Balaam had an ass once that spoke to him, but that didn't mean the ass had eternal life, and it didn't mean the ass was walking in the truth. He was an ass. God used it. God gave them gifts. And God can give his gifts to whomever he wishes, and they are not the proof of a life that's right with God. A life that's right with God is proven by its compliance with the Bible. And so the Apostle Paul, he's going to praise them for a few verses, and then he's going to unload on them for a whole lot of verses. Whenever you're dealing with one of those people that worships spiritual gifts, just remind them the church that had the most also had the most problems because that is not the measure of a man. That's not the measure of a church. The measure of a church is do you still have your first love of Jesus Christ, not your first love of a gift? There's a huge difference. Huge difference. In all utterance and in all knowledge, this church was enriched, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. The gifts that I showed when I was with you and confirmed you in the gospel, you have had those own gifts given to you yourselves. Remember when Paul would go and preach the gospel, he would confirm the gospel by mighty signs and wonders. 
The book of Acts, the book of Hebrews chapter 2, and the first four verses, and other places tell us about those mighty signs and wonders, which confirm the gospel to these Corinthian saints. So that ye come behind in no gift, in verse 7, you are second place to no other church in the number of spiritual gifts you have, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the character of a New Testament church, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have few ambitions in this world except to walk with God and to raise our children in the truth of the gospel and to help our church. We're waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would come and cut this service short, praise the Lord. And I hope that you think that very way. There is something between us and a brother in Malaysia. There is something between us and a brother in Michigan. We are all waiting for one great earth-shattering event the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us make sure that is the chief goal of this church. Verse 8, Who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God supplies and provides His blessing of grace and His Spirit that any man who wants to walk faithfully can be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. This verse does not promise that God is going to make every one of us blameless in a practical way when Jesus Christ comes. We will be blameless legally because Christ made us blameless. We are blameless vitally because we have a new man that is created in righteousness and true holiness. But whether we are practically blameless at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ is dependent upon our use Of God's grace. I've taught you this before. But holding your finger at 1 Corinthians. Let me make one of my few turns. This morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Because this point is important. There are those of the Calvinistic persuasion. That that are fatalists. If you ever scratch the surface. And get below their facade. They are fatalists. God has not promised. To make any of us blameless practically. We must use the grace of God that he's given us to be that way. Watch. 1 Thessalonians 3, beginning at verse 11. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end... He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Notice, the Lord is doing his part, and I want to get there so that I can do my ministerial part, Paul says, to the end, with the combined power of the proper preaching of the gospel and the grace of God, that you people will grow in holiness and in love, to be blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can come if he comes at the wrong time for your life and finds you full of blame. He can find you in trouble. He can find you in sin. He can find you living carnally. But he's provided the grace that that shouldn't happen. And the proper preaching of the gospel is for that not to happen. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I will follow up on any one of these points that you do not think I have dealt with adequately for you with anyone in here. But we have to keep moving. 
The point being, God will confirm you to the end. It's unsaid here, but it's implied and understood if you are faithful. God is not going to keep confirming you if you're going to live wickedly. God can step back and leave you to your own devices. God can cut you off in your life like he did the saints, oh, at Corinth. Why, now that I think about it, there were people already dead in this church. Now, what kind of confirmation is that? God hadn't confirmed them in holiness or blamelessness. He had cut them off because they were to blame. Verse 10, verse 9, excuse me, verse 9, God is faithful. Now, the Corinthian church might not be faithful, and we might not be as faithful as we wish we were, but God is faithful. By whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God will not forsake his children if they are seeking him and wanting to obey him. God is faithful. He will always provide the strength and the grace and the spirit to live a holy life. We can never blame God. If we sin... James chapter 1 tells us, Do not err, my beloved brethren. That sin did not come from God. It came from your own sinful lust in your heart. Every good gift and every perfect gift, which is able to help you live a holy life, comes down from God. Sin comes from you. And so we have his commendation in verses 4 through 9 that commend the church, commend them for their spiritual gifts, commend them for the grace of God that saved them out of the city of Corinth and commend them to, be, to living faithfully and using that grace to be blameless when Jesus Christ does come back with all his saints. We come to verse 10. Verse 10 is going to run down to verse 16. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. These are the words of the apostle to the church regarding their first problem. He starts out in verse 10 by saying, Now I beseech you, brethren, And that's a gentle way of approaching any person. I beg you, I implore you, I ask you, I beseech you. He didn't drop the gospel hammer yet. He beseeches them. I beseech you, brethren. But in his gentle request of them regarding their divisions, he does drop a name. Now, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, see, Paul was not a lord over the Corinthian heritage. All Paul was was an ambassador for a king that was highly displeased with the conduct of this church. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, not by me, but by the Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing 
and there be no divisions among you. A church right. ought to be saying the same thing in all spiritual matters. Right. If you like butter pecan ice cream and someone else likes mint chocolate chip, then let the two different snowflakes like their ice cream. But in all spiritual matters, there should be no division in the church of God. Amen. We should all speak the same thing. Truth is truth. It is not truths. Right. Truth is truth. All speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you. But that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Right. A church should be united. And it's something that I pray very much for this assembly, and it is something I want to preach about tonight, that we be united in the fear of the Lord and in the truth of the gospel. United, one mind, one voice, speaking and saying the same things. God cannot stand division. God cannot stand bitterness, envy, resentment, hatred, dislike, or any problems between church members. We have been united by the blood of Christ. Nothing else matters. And I will address that further tonight. But this is what the epistle teaches. This is why we do things the way we do them. When someone joins our assembly, it is a unanimous vote. When someone is put out, it is unanimous. We don't really vote because we're all in agreement with what Jesus Christ has said. And if we have a decision to make, like we did last Sunday evening, of a carnal matter of how we're going to have the assembly arranged, the minority submits to the majority so that we're always of one mind. We do not allow anything to come into this church that would separate us and cause us to be thinking and speaking differently. That verse right there is one of the precious verses in the New Testament about how God wants His church to be. Totally united. Speak the same thing. No divisions. Perfectly joined together. Same mind. Same judgment. And that is what we aim for. I have told you and taught you in the past. We will take people in who are not fully converted on all the points that we're converted on. I have told you that I can allow differences like that as long as two conditions are met. First, they can still listen and submit to the preaching that is made, and that difference is not so much that they stop up their ears at the pastor. Then you've got a problem. Or that there's any seditious effort on their part to convert the church. Any one of those two are violated, out they go. If those aren't violated, none of us see everything absolutely eye to eye. But I'll tell you one thing. We're not going to go around talking about our differences. What we're going to do is talk about all the things that we agree on and promote a church that's in unity because that's what God expects of us. Okay, he says, I beseech you, brethren, that this is the way you ought to be, and here's what I've heard about you. Verse 11, it's been declared to me by Chloe and his family that there are contentions in the church. Now, this is one of the places in the Bible where it tells us that it is not whispering or backbiting or tailbearing when you tell someone in authority something that someone else is doing wrong with the objective of being their help and perfection. Do you follow that? You know that from the book of Proverbs, we have to rail on whispering and tailbearing and backbiting on a regular basis. And I hate it because it is the mark of hatred in the heart whenever anyone says anything negative about another person. It only flows from one thing, hatred. And God can't stand hatred. It's murder. Cain killed Abel, 
And so it was the devil perpetrated his murderous hatred down into humanity. And there ought not to be any of it in the church of Christ. But for a person to write a letter to the Apostle Paul and say, listen, we've got problems here. We're not pleasing the Lord. Can you please help us out? You know, the Apostle Paul accepted that. Now, the Apostle Paul would have made diligent inquisition into this accusation, wouldn't he have? Because Proverbs chapter, are you with me? Proverbs 25.2 says, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the glory of kings to search a matter out. Deuteronomy 13 says, if you hear say in one of your cities that the people there have gone and worshipped Baal, then the judges shall make diligent inquisition to see whether the thing be so or not. See, there's hearsay. This is hearsay. But the Apostle Paul would have checked it, and the Apostle Paul wouldn't have had to check far because he would have had the gift of discernment to know whether this was true or not. And so he has this accusation about the contentions that were in Corinth. And then he speaks for himself in verse 12. He says, now this I say. This is what I believe the problem is in your church. You've all made preacher preferences, and so you're divided one from another. Some of you are saying, I am of Paul. Some are saying, they stand with Apollos. Others want to line up with Peter. And then some other self-righteous ones say, well, I'm with Christ. They're all self-righteous, and they're all in error, because Paul and Christ were one. Paul said, be ye followers of me, as I am a follower of Christ, in 1 Corinthians 11, in the same epistle. Preacher factions, mistaking the man in the pulpit, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And there had better not ever be any confusion about that. The men in the pulpit are no superior, are not superior to Balaam's ass. They are nothing. The Apostle Paul will say many times, I am nothing. John the Baptist would say, I must decrease and he must increase. There can never be loyalty to the pastor that ever competes with loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything must be done in a church to minimize even the possibility of that happening. And so do you know what the Apostle Paul says? He says, I'm thankful that I only baptized a few of you people, because if I'd have baptized more, the Paul faction would be even bigger. And I have seen that in my own lifetime. I have seen that in my own lifetime of people being thankful that a certain person baptized them. That is disgusting. That is disgusting. The person that baptizes you, do you know what they're good for? A back. Because you relax your back muscles and lay backward, and he uses his back muscles to let you down into the water and raise you up again. That's how important the man is who baptizes you. He's nothing. But at this church, they had a division. And this is ridiculous. And you look at this and you say, that is ridiculous. Every division we have is just as ridiculous. Jesus Christ has bought all of us. There ought to be no differences in here whatsoever. The Apostle Paul attacks it in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Is the Lord Jesus Christ and those saints that he has purchased that make up his body, is that divided? Was was Paul crucified for you? Why would there be any in the church at Corinth that would say, I am of Paul? Was I crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Those that I baptized, did I baptize them in my name, or were they baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why in the world are you picking pastors and choosing favorites? 
among the ministers. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. I'm thankful that the number of people in your church is a very small number that I baptized. Otherwise, the Paul faction would be larger. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. Now, I like that right there. Have a little humor in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit inspires from Paul the fact that he wasn't sure who he had baptized at Corinth. And that's very comforting to all men, isn't it? Especially as we pass through that veil called 40. And head toward the veil called 50. And then 60 and then 70. Isn't it wonderful here? Paul's saying... I'm not sure. It's Crispus and Gaius. I'm glad that I only baptized Crispus and Gaius. And then as he writes, well, there was Stephanus, and I can't remember if there are any more or not. But the Lord allows that into the writing of an epistle. And I find that precious, that he's able to use the infirmities of a man, inspire the words, and still have every one of them absolutely true. That's our Lord, and and I praise him for the scriptures that he's given us. Now, Stephanus was quite a man. We're going to encounter him in chapter 16. He's the one that Paul said is addicted, addicted to the service of the saints. And that's what I want this church to be. As we have opportunity to help any, I want us to be addicted to helping others to be like Stephanus was. We come to verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, And unto the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is great wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 17, the apostle, answering the fact that he had only baptized a few, and that some were saying they were of Paul, he says, Christ sent me not to baptize. Well, now Christ did send him to baptize. But baptism wasn't the chief end of his ministry. Paul was an apostle. All apostles were sent to teach and to baptize. Matthew chapter 28. Paul has just said that he baptized some of these saints. Now, if Christ sent him not to baptize, if we don't understand the sense of those words, then he would have admitted he just sinned here ministerially. But he didn't. Baptism wasn't the chief end of Paul. He had lesser ministers do the baptizing to protect the apostles from men going around saying, well, I was baptized by the apostle Paul. And so baptism wasn't his chief end. 
he could have any other minister baptize those that he had preached the gospel to. He said, I was sent to preach the gospel. That was my primary task. And so he says that in verse 17. Now he tells us a little bit about his preaching. And there's so much in this second half of this verse in light of the generation in which we live. I preach the gospel not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. I do not preach with the education and learning that I have been given. I do not preach with the eloquence that I could preach with. I do not embellish the presentation of the gospel. I do not strive to make my delivery of the message about Christ attractive to the ear. That is what Paul said. Not with wisdom of words. I will not use philosophical argumentation like the Greek speakers. I will not use flowery speech to attract men like the eloquent orators. I am apt to teach. I will reason in the scriptures and allege out of them that Jesus is the Christ. But I will not make that message attractive to men in the flesh. Now, let's think about this for a minute because this is precious. The whole religious world today is doing everything they can in their assemblies and in their music, and in their preaching, if they have any left, and in all that they do, and here are their words, so that sinners will feel comfortable in our church. So that the ungodly will feel comfortable in our church. Paul never tried to make the ungodly comfortable. Paul never tried to make sinners comfortable. He laid the gospel out on the table and he did it by arguing from the scriptures and he did not use anything that would appeal to the ears of man and he said take it or leave it. This is the truth of the universe. There is a God in heaven. He has sent his son Jesus and he has appointed him to be the judge of the quick and the dead and he is coming soon to burn this world up. Repent. Men don't like that message. Not with wisdom of words. Why do men go to seminary today? They don't go to learn the Bible. They go to learn how to be good administrators and good elocutionists in delivering their messages. They go to learn how to use anecdotes and illustrations in order to enhance a sermon by telling illustrations. That's what men go to seminary for. They go to learn other languages that they'll forget six months out of school, the little tiny modicum of knowledge they had in those languages, in order to appeal to a people with a flattering title, Dr. So-and-so. Well, my pastor is Dr. So-and-so. You wouldn't believe how he preaches. Whoa, man. It's just wonderful. Well, whoop-de-doo. If you'd ever heard the Apostle Paul, you wouldn't have come away and said, Wow, Dr. So-and-so's really awesome in the way he preaches. You'd have come away from the Apostle Paul knowing that Jesus Christ was, was Paul's Lord and that Paul was serving Jesus Christ, and he was a crucified Christ, but he was one that was risen at the right hand of God the Father. There's a lot in that verse right there, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. The cross of Jesus Christ. Salvation from sin, death, and hell is an ugly story of an obscure Nazarene 
named Jesus of Nazareth, who died on the cross, condemned by the Romans and the Jews. But he rose from the dead. And I, a fisherman, am witness of that fact. That's the gospel of Christ. Anybody with any education hated that message. Anybody of importance in the world hated that message to be banded to the Nazarene. Remember, Paul was considered the chief of the sect of the Nazarenes because Jesus was looked upon as a simple, lowly Nazarene. So men despised that message. But there's another cross in the message of Jesus Christ, and that's the cross we all are supposed to bear. And when that cross is brought to bear as well, it is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he calls us to bear. And it's his cross and the preaching of his cross and what we as sinners and disciples of Christ are to do in our lives that men reject. Men despise it. The proper preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified will drive away the unregenerate and the reprobates. And it will attract the elect, and the regenerate. That is what it means to make the cross of Christ of none effect. All these churches out there that are doing everything, they, listen, they get rid of the name Baptist. We don't want to turn anyone off with the name Baptist. I wonder if John thought that way. I don't want to be known as John the Baptist. I want to be John the Fellowship Man. Or John the Community instead of John the Baptist. We want to do everything we can to get as many in as possible from the community. We want sinners and the ungodly and the unsaved to be comfortable in our church. That is what they say. They're making the cross of Christ of none effect. And these churches end up filled with unregenerate people. But that's only half of the effect. The unregenerate are comforted by going to church and being told that they're all saved and going to heaven. And the Bible warns about this heresy. Even Ezekiel dealt with it. You've made the heart of the righteous sad, and you've strengthened the hand of the wicked, that they will not depart from their wicked ways. These little people are told that because they made some decision, because they had an NBA star come and give his testimony, and so somebody invited Jesus into their heart, that they're saved. And so they're strengthened in their wickedness because now I know I'm going to heaven. Then the true elect of God that are sitting in that church, they have their spirits crushed. Their spirits are starving to hear the real word of God that lines up with what is in their souls. They've made the heart of the righteous sad. It's Ezekiel 13:22. I'm not going to turn you there, but it's a problem that Ezekiel had to deal with. The apostle was dealing with, and we deal with it if anyone ever did. By making the gospel attractive to men, polished speaker, a dance band, a light show, testimonies from athletes, pledges to the flag, and all other profane things that have nothing to do in the church of Jesus Christ, men come in and join the assembly that are unregenerate and reprobates. And the churches of Jesus Christ are ruined Because the cross of Christ is made of none effect. Because if you lay the cross of Christ out in its simplicity, there are people that God has changed their hearts that they love that message. And that's all they want. They don't want any of those other things. And the unregenerate can't stand the message. So they leave. 
And so the churches of Christ are kept purest by preaching the unvarnished truth about Jesus Christ and true discipleship. We live in a whole generation obsessed with doing the opposite of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17. You preach the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you keep that the emphasis of a church. You keep the holiness, holy living for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, the emphasis of a church. And all you'll have left are sincere believers in the end, and a few that have snuck in among them. And there'll be heresies that come up every now and then so that those can be exposed and disposed of. As he'll say in a few chapters, he'll say, there must be heresies among you so that they which are approved may be made manifest and those that aren't approved can be put out. Verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Unsaved and unregenerate people we do not want in this church. Do you know what I just said? You know, everybody else today says the very opposite. We want the unregenerate in here so that we can get them regenerated. We do not want the unregenerate in here. That's like inviting the devil into our assemblies. We want them out of here. And if we preach the right gospel, they won't come in because they won't want to be here because there's nothing that attracts them because the preaching of the cross to the unregenerate is foolishness. You know, the whole world outside these walls believes that if you give me a perishing man, I can sing Rescue the Perishing, preach a little of John 3.16 to him, and I can make him into a saved man. But the gospel to an unregenerate man is foolishness. Now, how are you going to save a man by something he considers foolishness? Because he makes fun of it? Does that get him to heaven? They are so confused because they want salvation in their hand, because they're sacramentalists. They want to make the preaching of the gospel the vehicle of salvation when Jesus Christ is the means of salvation. By means of death, Hebrews chapter 9 tells us, we were redeemed and we were saved. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It will always be foolishness. And if we polish it up, if we polish it up by making half of our sermons marital enhancement seminars, and everything else that goes down for sermons, we are starting down the path of modifying the cross of Christ. And that's what I meant last Sunday night when I, when I said almost derogatorily about my preaching to you on Bible economics. Right. I'll give you one sermon once in a while, probably at a men's meeting, about Bible economics. I'm not going to waste this pulpit to preach Bible economics. Now, it's in the Word of God. Right. And I will, but when I say I'm not going to use this pulpit and waste it, To preach Bible economics, I mean extended series like I once did. I am very convicted about that, and we are going to stay Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and once in a while the whole counsel of God as it includes Bible economics. But we may just take that up at a men's meeting because we want to stay focused on Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, crucified, and the cross that we are to take up to follow Him. Do you know what? I used to preach those kind of messages. God knows my heart, and I have told you, I have told some of you this. I could look out and see certain people saying amen and knew that the unregenerate in the assembly were saying amen because those people never say amen to preaching about Jesus Christ. They would want the tapes. They would come up and thank me for the message, but they never wanted the tapes nor thank me for messages about holy living or Jesus Christ. 
because their greatest ambition in life was the bucks of Bible economics. And there are bucks in Bible economics. But who cares about the bucks in Bible economics? Amen. Give me the grace right. and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ instead. Amen. I saw that. I've been a witness of it in my own life. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. A man that is perishing cannot be helped by the gospel because the gospel to him is foolishness. How many different ways do I need to say this for all of our children to understand? That if you preach the gospel to a person that God has not born again, has not been born again, that God is not regenerated yet, God has to change a man first. God has to give a man a new heart. Then you can preach the cross of Jesus Christ to him and he loves it. But to a man that's not had his heart changed, the preaching of the cross is to him foolishness. If he invites Jesus into his heart, it's just to get rid of you. It's to get the medicine for his aunt that the missionary is offering. It's to get the candy bar from the missionary for his children. It's so sickening. Do you know the the doctor that served many of us in this assembly a number of years ago? A female doctor is now in Indonesia being a doctor there, supposedly as a missionary. Let me tell you something. If I was sick and a doctor came and told me that they had medicine to make me better and told me that I needed to invite Jesus into my heart, I'd do it three times a day. I'd invite Jesus into my heart three times a day to get that medicine. If I was a perishing person and was told, I can make you better, Now give me those little starving children in Sedan. Along comes the missionary. He gives them two bowls of cream of wheat in a row. They gorge themselves on cream of wheat, and then that little child is given a colored wrapper from America that covers a chocolate candy bar. Do you know what? I'd invite Jesus in four times for that. (laughs) Now, some of you may think that I'm harsh. If you think me harsh... Find anything that's even close to that in the Word of God. Getting people to invite Jesus into their heart, which isn't taught anywhere in the Bible, for the unregenerate. You know, Revelation 3.20 about Jesus standing at a door and knocking is to a church of saved people that they need to have closer fellowship with Him. It has nothing to do with everlasting life. Do you know how much God has saved us from in that simple little verse, in understanding it? The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Why don't you walk up to those people in Indonesia and tell them that the Lord Jesus Christ has crushed Allah already and that Muhammad is in hell and that Jesus Christ is coming to burn up the earth. Do you know how many people will believe that gospel? They're going to kill you for it. On Saturday, I happened to hear a, a, a real blasphemous little story told by a pastor of a church that had a basketball program for one of our young boys. And how typical it was of the Armenian gospel. All, all this person wanted to do was talk about the love song of Jesus. It's like all Jesus does is go around and tell a love song. The love song of Jesus. Why don't they ever want to talk about the love song of Jesus that Jesus sang to Caiaphas when he was on trial? Do all of you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Caiaphas said, I adjure thee by the living God. 
tell us whether you're the Son of God or not. Jesus hadn't said a word to this point. Now he's got the highest ranking religious official in the nation of Israel. You bet I am. But I want to tell you one more thing. You're going to see the Son of God coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he destroyed the nation of Israel. You want to talk about the love song that Jesus sang to Israel in 70 A.D.? Why doesn't anyone want to talk about it? What about, I heard all about that love song. Jesus telling a love song. I asked my children on the way home, do you think Noah slammed a CD in and played it with loudspeakers off the bow of the ark? The Jesus love song. Some will hear this message and be offended by my harshness and by my illustrations, but there'll be others that say, Amen. Wow. That raises some interesting points. I wonder if Noah did play that off the the bow of the ark, a love song of Jesus. I wonder if Caiaphas was thinking about the love song of Jesus when he didn't dare step out in the streets because the blood was eight inches deep in the streets of Jerusalem. I wonder if he was thinking about the love song of Jesus when it was reported to him that some of the noble women had eaten their children in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. They despise it. You go and preach the message that I've just preached, and do you know how big your congregation will be in Greenville? Look around. Look around. It hurts to watch television. It hurts for me to watch Betty Hinn get up there in his white suit and white shoes, the most effeminate man in America, the biggest liar in America, and the biggest financial thief in America taking advantage of all those poor little widow women out there when he when he holds his hand up to his head and says, I'm getting a word of wisdom. I'm getting a word of wisdom. There's some woman out there that's got a kidney stone. Oh, Jesus. Jesus. Oh, Jesus. He's healing it. He's healing it right now. I got a word of wisdom that there's a woman with a kidney stone and Jesus is healing her kidney stone. I watch that. I enjoy watching it once in a while. 15,000 people, they pass the big buckets, the five-gallon pails, and they all put their money in. Because that woman, who had been told she had a kidney stone, because he's playing his odds real well, he's playing his odds, he's got somebody out there with a kidney stone, that woman, because she's just saying hallelujah for an hour and a half with speakers and a rock band, and she's been worked into a frenetic frame of mind like the coal walkers of the aborigines. She thinks that her, she feels, Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus! Thank you, Jesus! My kidney stone is gone. But now, of course, if she goes to the doctor, she'll probably find out that she's got two more. Now, you say, why did you, why did you run that little rabbit trail? Because I look at television, I see 15,000 people sitting there for four-hour assemblies, and nobody wants to hear the truth. You say, is it really a four-hour assembly? Uh Uh-huh. He has warm-up guys that take the crowd for two or three hours before he comes out on stage because he's got to get them worked into a frenzy so that when they get up there on the stage and he blows on them, they fall down. See, anybody that knows any little bit about crowd management can figure that out. 
It's the psychosis developed by singing or with a whole group of people with loud music over and over and over again. And then they get up there and he can slay them in the spirit. Yes, he slayed them in the spirit, but it wasn't the spirit of God. Amen. That, that gospel of Benny Hinn wearing a white suit and white shoes called the Benny Hinn Ministries, not the Lord Jesus Christ Ministries, taking their money, fraudulently pretending that he's a healer, they love it. They love that message. But a message of Jesus Christ crucified and us being crucified to follow him as his faithful disciples, they would throw you out in the street and you'd have just a few souls. And it's always been that way, brethren. From Noah being one of the first preachers of righteousness, he ended up with a church of eight, to the Lord Jesus Christ being a preacher of righteousness and having a church of 120. That is the truth of the gospel. And we are at verse 18, and the second half says, But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Amen. Notice at what it says. It doesn't say, but unto us which will be saved, it is the power of God, which would be a future, present <coughs> verb combination, which would mean that the preaching gets us saved. It doesn't say, but unto us which are saved, it was the power of God. It doesn't say that either, does it? It says, but unto us which are saved, which means we're saved already. That is a passive voice, perfect tense, verb construction, meaning an action completed in the past, still present, still true in the present. Are saved. We were saved in the past. We're still saved in the present. And to us who, who were saved and who are still saved by the power of God, the preaching of the cross is to us the power of God. We hear the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, conceived of a virgin, answering the doctors of the law when he was 12, confounding the Pharisees without any education, healing the sick, stopping storms at sea, raising the dead, dying on the cross when he was innocent, without invoking the, aids of his, uh, the aid of his helpers, rising from the dead. And we see in all of that the power of God in the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because we are saved. The preaching of the cross is not the vehicle. It's not the means. It's not the tool. It's not the thing that God uses to save anyone in this sense of salvation. Because what a man needs is to be born again. Then when he hears the preaching of the cross, it is to him the message of the power and the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. Notice. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Is the preaching of the cross ever foolishness in itself? No. It is perceived as foolishness by men who are lost. Is the preaching of the cross the power of God itself? Or is the preaching of the cross perceived by men who have a new heart and a new mind as revealing the power of God? The preaching of the cross does not bring immortality and eternal life. The preaching of the cross brings immortality and eternal life to light. The gospel does not save men in the sense of causing them to be born again. The gospel comes and tells the born again man all about how he was born again, by whom he was born again, that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
The preaching of the cross is then the parish foolishness. If a church focuses on the preaching of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the unregenerate will not be happy there. They will sleep during the services. They will doze, and you will not have spiritually minded conversations with them before or after because they have nothing in common with the message. It's just foolishness to them. Why does he preach so long on something so boring? We already know that. That's what's going through their mind. The preaching of the cross to those that are saved is the power of God. And you want to walk out of here and serve that Lord Jesus Christ better than you ever have before. The Apostle Paul was committed that Christ had called him to preach the gospel and he wasn't going to preach it with the wisdom of man's learning. He was not going to embellish the presentation nor polish it. He was going to give the unvarnished truth that Jesus Christ of Nazareth died on the cross, rose from the dead, is seated at God's right hand. An incredible, impossible fairy tale to those that are not saved. A glorious message of truth to those that have the Spirit of God dwelling in them after the work of regeneration. They hear it and they love it. So we come to verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I have fallen far short of my goal, but I hope that you will continue to read in the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians. Read the epistle a couple times. We want to learn this epistle and all that it has to teach us. It says so much in verses 17 and 18. This world believes. And as I got to tell you a few minutes ago, we have found another brother in another part of the world that believes it right along with us. And we want to help him in any way that we can. Let's all rise together. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the grace that was given us in Christ before the world began. In Christ, at the cross of Calvary, and given to us in regeneration because of what He had done for us. We thank Thee that the voice of the Son of God has called us into life. We thank Thee for the message that has been brought to us by many different men in different circumstances, teaching us the truth about Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. Heavenly Father, bless this church to remain loyal and faithful, dedicated and preoccupied with Jesus Christ crucified and His soon coming. Let us be a church looking for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we live in horrible times where men are watering down the gospel in every way they can to make it as Appealing as possible to the unsaved. Oh, Lord, let us never compromise it nor polish it, but let us make manifest the truth in the sight of all men and send us those that you have saved. As you told the Apostle Paul, you had much people in his city. Show us those in our city or in other places that we can serve in the gospel. Have mercy upon us and bless us in the remainder of the activities of this day that Jesus Christ might be glorified. For we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.